Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are keeping score a number of issues, both on and off the field and court. So let's deal with the top three deal-making issues, three to one. First, number three. Here's one that all of us golfers might appreciate. Although gym rats and team sport athletes might scoff at golfers not being real athletes, new research suggests hitting the links at least once a month can lower the risk of death in older adults. The study, perhaps the first of its kind to evaluate the long-term health benefits of golf, lead author and executive director of the Zenat Korshi Stroke Institute at the University of Missouri, said for 10 years, Researchers analyzed data from the cardiovascular health study, which is a population-based observation of a risk factors for heart disease and stroke in adults 65 and older. And of 5,900 participants, 384 were golfers. Of those golfers, 8.1% suffered a stroke during the follow-up. 9.8% had a heart attack. But when researchers looked at death rates, the golfers was much lower. 15.1% compared to 24.6% for non-golfers. Those 25 million Americans who take to the golf course each week might just outlive us all. That's number three. Number two, LeBron and AT&T. According to multiple reports, AT&T and LeBron James have agreed to a long-term strategic partnership with a mutual mission to use technology, entertainment, and innovation towards social advancement and to promote new AT&T products and services. This is the latest jewel in James's crown of long-term business partnerships, creative ventures, and endorsement deals. That's number two. Number one, the NBA warns its 30 teams they may soon be playing in empty arenas conventional wisdom holds that outdoor sporting events are safer for athletes and spectators than arenas because of the threat of COVID-19 because fresh air is safer than the best indoor ventilation. Thus, the NBA delivered teams a Tuesday deadline to have several precautionary measures in place regarding coronavirus. The NBA, according to ESPN, is calling for teams to have an infectious disease specialist on call a nearby testing facility for the coronavirus, and a roster of essential employees who have close physical contact with players. The NBA memo also told teams to prepare in case it becomes necessary to play games without fans or media, and the team should identify which team and arena people would be necessary to conduct games and should be able to communicate quickly with non-essential staff. Leagues, teams, and conferences stand to lose hundreds of millions of dollars if not billions, if sporting events continue to be adversely affected by the coronavirus threat. That's clearly number one. Well, speaking of indoor arenas, the NCAA continues to say they're going to go ahead with all plans relative to March Madness, and the same goes for conference tournaments. Good timing. Bernadette McGlade, the commissioner of the A-10 conference and one of the most well-respected leaders in Division I, She's in her 11th year as Atlantic 10 commissioner. She's uh, been involved in in including and importantly securing comprehensive media rights agreements and first-class venues and destination cities for the basketball championship, including New York, now 
successful guidance through major college athletics, changing from conference realignment to NCAA restructuring. Former student-athlete and coach, her administrative experience, Georgia Tech, the 96 Olympic Games, the ACC Conference, numerous national organizations and associations. A graduate of uh, UNC at Chapel Hill, native of Gloucester City, New Jersey, Bernadette McGlade. Sports professor Ricardo inside the boardroom, beyond the scoreboard. Uh, honored to be with Bernadette McGlade, who has been the A-10 Conference Commissioner for a decade and a year? I'm actually beginning year number 12. It's hard to believe. Wow. That is, we have watches and rings and <laughs> Hall of Fame entry and all of that. So it's an incredible um, uh, honor, obviously, to be the commissioner of a, of, a, of a major conference. But you also have a lot of issues to deal with relative to the future of college basketball and the future of college sports. Everybody is in, in the turbulence and flux. And So first of all, thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. Great. It's great to be here, Rick. Really an honor to uh, participate. And you're right, there's ever-changing landscape, and there's something to do every morning when you wake up. Well, and, and, and I assume the, um, the whole notion of where conferences are today has evolved considerably over the last few years. Tell me what the biggest change has been from a business perspective in your mind. I think the biggest change from the from a business perspective, obviously the advent of the CFP, the college football yeah. playoff, and the amount of revenue that is generated through that playoff. And a lot of people, you know, that don't pay a whole lot of attention to intercollegiate athletics don't realize that those revenues really only go to the um, Power Five conferences. And then there are five additional conferences that are the group of five that play FBS football. And so the rest of the Division One membership really doesn't have any opportunity to have a distribution portion of those revenues. And quite frankly, the, the gap in the um, financial um, status of Division One conferences um, is growing wider and wider every year. Um, in addition to that, I think the second biggest thing has been the advent of what we all know as the autonomy five some people refer to it as the power five mm. conferences mm -hmm. and you don't you're you the know, autonomy five not the power no, five <laughs> i wish we were i wish we were one of those conferences some days yeah. but obviously um we changed the governance process within the ncaa and those five conferences when you talk about the pac-12 the sec the big 10 um the acc and the big 12 those five conferences they have a higher weighted voting ability in within our governance structure, which means they have a lot of autonomy, hence the word, to make rules and regulations that can really affect them in a very uh, positive way. And um, the other conferences, uh, quite frankly, the other 27 conferences are really in a situation of trying to keep up financially. So of those 22, let's say, you are blessed with big media markets. Exactly. And therefore, some of the other D1 uh, conferences that are basketball driven right. sing a even greater tale of revenue disparity woe uh, than you do. We are. Uh, I often say the A10, we're in a very much a niche type of space. And when you talk about Division One conferences, because you're absolutely correct, we are member institutions, we're 14 institutions, and we're in 31% of the media markets mm -hmm. in America. Um, and some of the major media markets when you're talking about New York, Philadelphia, mm -hmm. Washington, D.C., 
and then smaller markets to a lesser degree of St. Louis and Charlotte and um, you got them all Richmond. In. You almost got them all. In. We them all. Yeah, yeah, almost. And and it really is. It's an opportunity. I think the one thing that when I took over um, in this position was fortunate enough to be named commissioner. The conference was floundering somewhat, but you know we really had to focus on who we are when we looked in the mirror. We're a basketball centric league. We have to be mm-hmm. successful. We have to be nationally relevant, and that's where we generate our revenues, which basically sustain. Um, you know the rest of the of the conference, and you know we run an annual budget anywhere from you know fifteen to eighteen million dollars a year. So you're a big business. You're a big business, mm-hmm. like a lot of other um, conferences and a lot of other sports are big businesses. You're working with the '96 Olympic Games. You're at Georgia Tech. Mm-hmm. You were at Carolina, obviously with the ACC. You have a diverse experience across a lot of different disciplines. Is the A10 more similar or more different than any of your prior experiences? Well, uh, from the commitment of our athletic directors, the value and mission of our universities, the um, competitive spirit of wanting to be successful, win championships and be nationally relevant, I would say it's all absolutely the same as the A10 to the ACC to everything that we did. When people have asked me this question before, and I say the only difference between the A10 and the ACC in many cases is the number of zeros at the end of our checkbook. Mm-hmm. And where the decimal and right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We just, you know, from a revenue standpoint, you're in a different landscape, especially when you don't have major football and you don't have bowls and, and those types of, of events. So when the tournament comes around, not just the A10 championship, mm-hmm. but the big dance, you're... Um, waiting for every A-10 win because of those unit dollars that then come back to the conference and how they're distributed. But talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about the tournament and how important it is to your financial survival and existence. Yeah, it's absolutely critical. As as I've used the term all the time, basketball-centric league, to be nationally relevant, you have to win. You have to win. You have to have more than one team. You have to have multiple teams get into the NCAA championship and, so to speak, go dancing in March when March Madness comes Mm -hmm. around when just a couple of weeks. And so, yes, the league is very committed to that. We're focused on that. And our schools basically um, support their programs in that way. It's, you know, they're spending millions and millions of dollars in from salaries to recruiting to facilities to be able to compete at the highest level in Division One, And that's a major source of our revenue in the A-10, combined with our media rights fees that, that we receive from our large media partners. You have the same kind of business structure and the same kind of, uh, of balance sheet, but again, with a few less zeros. The revenue partners, from a television perspective, I assume, are important to your long-term stability. But people often forget that you've got to support other sports with those revenues, not just basketball. Basketball-centric league, but not a basketball-only league. Exactly. And, you know, we, do, we run our men's championship in, up at Barclays. We've been at Barclays. We've been at Capital One here in um, Washington, D.C., but the majority of our championships the last seven years have been in New York, which has been fabulous mm-hmm. for the brand and for the revenue generation of the league. Um, and it, it's critical that, that we are successful in that sport because we do then support 6,000 other student-athletes yeah. in 19 other championships of field hockey, and we have swimming going on and you know cross-country and lacrosse and um, you know, it's a tremendous league. It's it's a really, um, it's an honorable conference, and we have such an athletic tradition. And we also rank up there um, number three in graduation success rates. We're right there, number one and two, with the Ivy League and the Patriot and the ACC and 
and um, the A-10 and the Big East were all in the top five. So pretty impressive league when you look at it collectively for athletic success, financial success, and academics. I'd also take most of the schools in any one of those five conferences and have a pretty darn good basketball game against any other schools there, too. It's kind of really interesting. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely. And the fans love it. It's yeah. great basketball. And, you know, it's you really, you just, I mean, from night in and night out, the games just continue to get better. And the, and the student athletes and coaching just elevates every year. And I think it has a lot to do with how much the colleges and universities are financially supporting intercollegiate athletics as, you know, in essence, sort of the front porch to every uh, college brand right now. Process, psychology, consensus building, uh, crystal ball question over time. So we obviously have a directive from the uh, from uh, the, the uh, Emert office that by the end of this year, beginning of next year, we'll have some meaningful process relative to endorsement dollars and name likeness dollars. Does that trigger a larger process discussion about revenue distribution across conferences? Does it polarize the haves versus have-nots even more? Just give me a sense of the process that's going on this year. Yeah, I think that you're right. There's definitely going to be change in NCAA rules and legislation as it relates to a student-athlete's name, image, and likeness. However, I do think there's going to have to be a very careful demarcation between the individual student-athletes name, image, and likeness, and the um, brand of your member institution and or of your conference. There's going to have to be a demarcation there of some sort, which is kind of the rules and the guidelines that, you know, Mark Emerit and the working group are working on right now and trying to get some support from D.C. and federal assistance mm -hmm. to slow down and not allow for all of these outside government regulations in 50 different states get passed because that would become untenable and really would be a chaotic situation. So um, quick, fast, smart work needs to be done right now. But I do think it will open up opportunities for student athletes in the Atlantic 10 um, as much as it will for student athletes in a Big 10 or an ACC um, because I think you have passionate fan bases and businesses in you know, Richmond, Virginia with VCU and University of Richmond or New York City with Fordham, that they are as passionate about perhaps using their student athletes in a you know, spokesperson role, et cetera. So I do think the op opportunities will get opened for um, more than the Zion Williams, so to speak, of the world. Yeah, because there's only one of them. Exactly. That's, a, that, exactly. that's part of the problem. Right. Do we, do we see a, uh, and I don't want to give away, I want you to give away too much, but is is there a template that will fit all relative to that kind of structure? Will it be up to program by program? Peren, many would hope not. Uh, how do you think this is all going to uh, resolve itself over the next year, two well, years? Well, as an association, I think that everyone is hopeful that there has to be some sort of a, what if, if you want to call it a national template, mm -hmm. um, that would be what would be the big guardrails, the big... Um, policies and then I think there's going to have to be a lot of you know individual institution could be conference by conference kind of refining of how exactly permissive you're going to be within what the large parameters that are set that would prevent you from violating rules keep your student athlete eligible so you can still compete for national championships but not prohibit a student athlete from the the rightful ownership of their own likeness 
Man, that's a lot of work. That's hard to do. It's hard to do. And when you said quick, smart, fast work, you got the courts pressure, you mm -hmm. got the California and other states pressure as well. So do we think that the Emmert challenge to say we're going to get something done by the beginning of next year, was that a um, an unrealistic expectation or did it galvanize the troops through the thinking committee to make sure that things happen quicker than otherwise? Well, I, I really, I don't know in terms of commenting on Mark Emmert's specific comments, mm -hmm. but I do think that the association, the membership, my fellow commissioners, the athletic directors, presidents have been galvanized quite significantly. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, and um, on top of this, I'm really very attuned to this um, for, you know, much longer than just this past year when it's hit such a, I would say, public high media pitch. Yeah, and, and so just just uh, the, the the whole notion of how important college athletics is to the university and, and to society uh, at, at large. We'll leave it with the softball. I mean, people shouldn't forget the contribution that all sports make as far as the number of student athletes and where it goes, and how responsible you are as stewards of the games. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know, in many. Um, many aspects the NCAA which is all the member institutions and the association has done a very poor job of really um, branding and um, you know publicizing and really sharing the message of all of the benefits of intercollegiate athletics you know we can go on and on with the stats about you know how many um, you know of the fortune 500 you know boards and CEOs and companies are former student athletes yeah. and the skills and the traits that you learn I look at myself and my lifelong professional, I would say, I guess, ascend would certainly not have been to this degree had I not been a undergraduate student athlete at the University of North Carolina playing on the women's basketball team in the early 70s when nobody even knew what Title IX was. So I think, you know, it's not just the high profile, you know, Alabama football player or, um, you know, the, the, whatever the Toby oh, Obi Toppin from Dayton yeah, yeah. you know it's yeah. you know it's the the female in ponytails that are playing basketball or or swinging the golf club or whatever and you know I think that that the the space there's nothing like athletics in the United States there's nothing like it in the world and even our scholarship program you know intercollegiate athletics you know, scholarships, athletic scholarships are the second largest scholarship program in the college and universities, second only to the GI Bill. And, wow. and that's a staggering financial impact. And it, it, it's a shame that the message has gotten so skewed, quite frankly, on name, image, and likeness within the last 15 months. Well, you know, and others know that with the people working with you, it'll get resolved over time, the guardrails will be mm -hmm. in, and then you can get back to what you need to do, which is selling an incredible game and an incredible series of sports. My final comment is, rumor has it that you're wearing less light blue because of the way the Tar Heels are playing this year. Is there any truth to that rumor? There's no truth to that rumor. I am a I'm dead loyal to the A-10, but let me tell you, we all remember our roots, and my alma mater, Carolina, is going through a rough patch but um, they're fine, uh, they're fine. Roy's doing a great job, their women's program is as well, and everybody's good at, in Chapel Hill. Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to God's ears. Uh, they're fine, look for them, not in the tournament this year, but it's only a quick one-year hiatus.
Bernadette McGlade, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Really incredible timing, given the conference tournaments, to have a commissioner who is so on the front lines and been so experienced with a conference. Her perspective really important. Let's look at the Sports Tech Minute and an interesting perspective by baseball. They're offering a million dollars to those who can predict the statistical leaders of the upcoming decade. MLB.com says The Vault is a new fantasy game that asks participants to submit their predictions for the MLB's 20 through 29 leaders in nine categories. Those are difficult questions considering that at this time 10 years ago, Mike Trout had barely played a bug of rookie ball. Nelson Cruz was a 29-year-old with 55 career home runs. Max Scherzer had just been traded to the Tigers, and the Giants hadn't won a series since 54. MLB enlisted the help of some experts to give their best guesses, and many looked to Vlad Guerrero Jr. and Juan Soto as the leader in batting averages uh, in all categories, while Walker Buehler and Jack Flaherty are expected to dominate the mound overall. Trout and the Dodgers seem to be favorites. By combining a form of casual gambling, MLB may also be able to rack up new fans while solidifying previous fans as spectators, novice and expert, try to see if their picks stand up throughout the coming decade. And that's your Sports Tech Minute. Welcome in to the Esports Minute of Keeping Score with Rick Cora. I'm Mitch Reams from the Esports Network. The spread of the coronavirus is canceling esports events around the globe. Events in China had already been suspended for months, but in recent weeks, cancellations have spread through Europe into the U.S. as well. The original plan for Activision Blizzard and Riot Games was to move canceled events in China over to South Korea. After a health scare with one of the hosts in South Korea caused a quarantine, all events there have been suspended indefinitely. In Poland, a sold-out crowd was not allowed to attend IEM Katowice. Over 100,000 people attended the week-long event in 2019, and this decision from the regional Polish government came less than 24 hours before the event was set to begin. European League of Legends Spring Championship was moved from Budapest to the Berlin Studios. The Overwatch League is having the five teams based in Asia fly to LA to start playing matches. The Rocket League World Finals in Dallas were canceled to be played online. And a variety of other esports have had to amend or cancel events due to the virus. That's it for the Esports Minute. Back to Rick Hora. Finally, the Power of Sports Minute. Really interesting perspective. Drew Brees, David Ortiz, and more Boston-area sports figures shaved their head for Boston Children's Hospital. The $1.5 billion provider of communication services to multi-location businesses and government agencies, Granite Telecommunications, announced that more than 1,000 people shaved their heads in the 7th annual Saving by Shaving event. $7 million raised for Boston Children's Hospital. For each person who shaved his head or donated at least eight inches of their hair, Granite donated 2500 matched dollar for dollar by the Hale family. So a total of five grand per head to pediatric research and treatments for the Every Child Fund at Boston Children's Hospital. Additionally, all locks of hair will be donated to Hair We Share, which donates custom wigs free of charge for those affected by medical hair loss. A $100 donation was also made for each of the 234 chemo caps, hats for parents who've lost their hair due to chemotherapy, created by Granite Fibers Art Team. In the past seven years, more than 9,000 people have participated in the Saving by Shaving event, raising more than $35 million for charitable organizations and helping those with medical hair loss, a tremendous and worthy cause. That's your Power Sports Minute. 
Thank everybody for participating. Thank Bernadette McGlade for giving of her time on the heels or the beginning of the Atlantic 10 tournament. And thank you all for listening and watching. And join us again when we continue to keep score. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. Assistance provided by Carlos Swadek, Tanner Simpkins, Reuters Digital. I'm Ricardo. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.